Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we start in a four-part series in the book of 3 John. The name of this series is called Love and Truth. And Pastor David will be preaching from 3 John 1-4 through this week. Let's join Pastor David now. Well, we are starting just a four-part series through the book of 3 John. Uh, those of you who have been with us for a number of months now have walked with us through, we went through 1 John and then 2 John, and we've got to complete the trio. So uh, 3 John will be guiding our focus and attention over the next uh, handful of weeks. And if, if memory serves me correctly, 3 John is the smallest and shortest book in the New Testament. Uh, though, and though it's small in stature, it's mighty in the significance that it has for our lives. So today, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, 3 John, verses 1 through 4. Let me read them uh, today. 3 John, verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Let me pray. Father, as we look at your word, Lord, we acknowledge and recognize that every time that we come through your word, Lord, we are in some ways stepping into a spiritual battle. Lord, we are, we are prone to wander Lord, we are, have a broken tendency to turn a deaf ear to your word. Lord, there are times when in a very fitting and healthy and good way, your spirit seeks to convict us, yet sometimes we push you away. Father, I just pray for a sense of spiritual protection as we look at your word, that you would find receptive hearts, that you'd guide my words. Lord, that you would, by your spirit, illumine Make alive your word that already is living and active. Lord, even as I pray, as before we turn to your word, I'm reminded of the road to Emmaus, that those who walked with you and literally heard your voice reflected and asked, did not our hearts burn within us? And Lord, I ask that you would produce in us burning hearts that are so set on fire by your word that we would have no other opportunity uh, but to walk in it, to glorify you, and to acknowledge that you have met with us. So, Father, uh, that's why we're here. Would you move in us even now as we look at your word? Amen. Amen. Well, the, the center, so claims biblical Christianity, the center of true and ultimate reality if you peel back all the layers of the onion, and if you scratch all the way to the core of reality itself, you are going to find a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that the very, before existence existed, before creation itself, there was God. And biblical Christianity paints this profound um, reality and shows us and reveals to us that God himself is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that means at the very center of all reality, the very center of truth, is God, persons living in loving unity. <laughs> that the Trinity 
is God in three persons. He are three. They is one. And this is how Scripture paints and describes a God himself. Now, if the message of the gospel is that by faith you and I, believers, Christians, are absorbed up into Christ, don't miss this, that the gospel is not something as if it was outside of Jesus, that he came to bring whatever that might be. The gospel is Jesus. It's him that we are saved by union with him, connectedness to him, by the Spirit, connected to Christ, reconciled back to God. And that means that the gospel brings us into, literally, relationship, connectedness with God himself. Now, obviously, we don't become deity. We're not God. But this beautiful message of grace says that we are welcomed in, connected to, absorbed, united to Christ. Now, if the very center of truth in reality is a God living in loving community in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and you are wrapped up in that, and you are absorbed up into that reality, that means that the gospel produces, it creates, it forms a Christian family in a family of love. In a family of love because we reflect the very love that God has in and of himself and we reflect the very love that God has shown to us. And this is what the gospel forms and creates, this family of love. Look at again the first two verses. Uh, the apostle John writes, he is the elder, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now, in, even in these first two verses, we see, well, we see a couple of things. One, we see that uh, this is a letter written from John to a person, to Gaius, his friend. And we see uh, this word repeated, or, or two cognates of the same word, beloved and love. Beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you. And whenever you see in Scripture, the same word repeated over and over, three times in two verses, that's one way in which the biblical writers are trying to grab our attention. That's how they use bold. That's how they use italics. That's how they use a highlighter, sometimes repetition of a concept. And we see this burst of love between John and his friend Gaius. As you read those first two verses, you can... You can um, sense already the tone of the letter of John writing to his friend. It feels like a verbal bro hug. Men, you know this. You come in at an angle, you know, the double pat, single pat, sometimes fist pat. There's all sorts of different options for the bro hug. But it's, it's an expression of care, isn't it? It's an expression of love. Two guys, elder, the elder John writing to his friend, uh, Gaius, whom he loves in the truth. And we see this beautiful expression of biblical friendship, biblical friendship within the family of faith. And as we take a look at this, and as we, as we recognize that actually we know somewhat little about John's friendship with Gaius. The name Gaius appears in four, other, four places uh, in the Bible, 
But scholars understand it's probably referring to different people, similar as a common name today might refer to a bunch of different people. So it is here. This Gaius is probably unique to 3 John. So we only know about him and his friendship with John from what we can infer from this letter. But what we do know, what we do see, is that these two guys cared about each other. There is a deep and rich biblical friendship that is formed by their connectedness, their union, their shared connectedness to Christ. And when we see this, we see the beauty of this concept of biblical friendship, biblical friendship as a type and kind and quality of gospel-shaped love. Listen on to what Jesus says in John chapter 15. Some of you may know this passage very well. John 15 uh, a handful of verses here. Jesus says in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And so on the verse goes as Jesus continues to talk. And we see again this glimpse into this beautiful biblical picture of friendship within the family of faith. And though we don't know much about John and his friendship with Gaius, sometimes, as we've mentioned before, sometimes the ambiguities of Scripture create relatability for us. Maybe someone comes to your mind, a friend, someone who's been there for you, perhaps a friend from your childhood that you and and this person have essentially grown up together, that you've known each other through every single season of life. And when you connect with them, maybe you're separated by by space. When you connect with them, it it fills your mind back with all those memories, right, from, from childhood. Maybe you've got a friend from high school or college, from a key season of your life that by the shared season of life, you just bonded together, and in some ways, uh, you, you will always be walking with that person as a friend. Maybe some of you have friends, uh, maybe couples, couple friends, that perhaps you and, uh, you and your spouse had children the same time they and their spouse had children, and you're raising your families together. And their joys and struggles are your joys and struggles, and your joys and struggles are their joys and struggles. And we start to get this glimpse of the family of faith, that as it is formed, because we are connected to a God who is love, when we pour out love to one another, even in friendship, it it elevates friendship, doesn't it? Oftentimes, oftentimes I think when we think about friendship, it it seems somewhat trivial. It seems kind of a pat-on-the-head type of a word. But when we start to look closer at what loving relationships in the family of faith look like, and when Jesus starts to use language like, just as I have loved you, love one another. No greater love is someone than this than someone who lays down his life for his friend. Jesus, I, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And we start to ask, well, how did Jesus love us? He loved us to death. He loved us with incredible loyalty. He, he, he served. He washed the feet of his disciples. He shared life together with them. And in a profound way, there is a kind of friendship kind of love that we don't even get 
in a family kind of love, and this is why. Have you noticed which ones of us, if I can ask it as a question, which ones of us chose which family we would be born into? <laughs> it's kind of out of our control, isn't it? And absolutely, we are called to love our family members, and that's a huge, biblical, rich metaphor of what it means to love one another. But, but notice, in a family, we don't have much of a choice. We just got to figure out how to love each other because we're kind of stuck with each other, you know, for better or worse. And that is, a, that is a biblical picture of love. But notice, with friendship, you choose that. You choose, you go out of your way, you seek out, you find to be someone's friend in the richest sense of the word. Just as I have loved you, so love one another, Jesus says, who lays down his life for his friend, someone that you choose to commit to. Biblical, rich, deep, gospel-like friendship. And this is a category, a friendship kind of love, that is helpful and useful no matter what a stage of life you find yourself in, whether you're single or whether you're married. We need this kind of love in the family of faith. And for those who are single, and in many ways all of us who are married were, were single until we weren't single anymore. <laughs> How's that for a profound thought of the day? But in, in singleness, whether that's for a short time, whether that's for your whole life, do you see that the family of faith, the, the, the Christian community, the Christian family provides an opportunity for a very incredible expression of love to be shown, a way that, that satisfies, a way that cares for one another in ways that the world can't, or in a metaphor large enough that is broad enough to capture the fullness of this expression of love in a way that the world can't. What, am I, what do I mean? What am I saying? You're going to run into narratives floating around in the world that uh, perhaps two different angles. One, you're going to run into a narrative that's going to look at singleness, and it's going to say it's kind of an identity deficit. And singleness, if it is an identity deficit, is kind of a, it's kind of a waiting room, isn't it? Uh, you're just waiting in the queue for who knows how long until finally you can be married, and then an identity can be complete, right? That's one narrative the world is going to say. It's an identity deficit. And oftentimes, singles, and you know this very well, you might even know where I'm going with this already, sometimes, sometimes, from well-meaning people who love you and care about you. You know, the, the proverbial aunt comes up and squeezes your cheek. The uh, proverbial experience, perhaps not so proverbial for some of you, someone comes up and comes near to you and says, so, how are you doing? Any friends in your life? You know, any good... In, you know exactly where they're going with this. And no, I'm still single. There's no one. It's okay. And underneath that, underneath that, and again, this often comes from well-meaning people who love you and care about you. But underneath that is this subtle idea, right? Singleness is an identity deficit. Or another narrative that we might find. If a singleness is not viewed as an identity deficit, sometimes the world sees it as a, a romance deficit. This subtle idea that unless you're married, unless you're romantic with someone, you're, you're missing out. That 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 your experience of life is going to be less full, less vibrant, less, uh, less complete. Do you see? Do you see that the gospel cuts both of these out at the knees? Do you see that the, a biblical expression of love in the family of faith satisfies, answers both of those objections and gives us something altogether different, something altogether, something that we need? Because the gospel does not say that singleness 
is an identity deficit or that it's a romance deficit, it looks at singleness and says, it's a calling. It's a calling. Yeah, someone else has said it, but it's, it's, it's too good that I could never get it out of my mind. They, they said, don't do something about your singleness. Do something with your singleness. And I think that idea hits right in the bullseye. Here's another profound thought of the day, that we are single until we're not. <laughs> you are called to singleness until you're not. And we see elsewhere in Scripture, the Apostle Paul says in some unique way that singles, um, you have a unique ability to pour all of your time and energy and focus and attention into the calling that God has placed on your life in such a way that married people and married people with families can't. Now, God's Word is not saying that there's, you know, some qualitative, one is better than the other in the sense of a qualitative difference, but what... What God's Word is illustrating and showing, I've heard someone else use this metaphor that singleness is like a, a small sports car, and marriage is like a minivan, and marriage with children is like an 18-wheel truck. That if, if you've got to make life decisions, if you've got to go from here to there, um, single people, you can just make those decisions. You can just decide. You zip around with the nimbleness of a sports car. When you're married, right, it adds another layer. You can't just make independent decisions. That took us, you know, what, three, four, five minutes into marriage to discover? We have to, right? It's a marriage. It's a partnership. We, gotta, we do this together, and that's a good and beautiful thing. And then, of course, parents and grandparents, you, know, you had children. That's a whole other layer. You want to make a decision? It's like turning an 18-wheel truck in downtown Chicago. It takes a lot of work, a lot of time. And what God's Word is getting at elsewhere in Scripture is that singles... God has placed a calling on your life. And I get that in some ways there might be seasons where that can be hard. But don't miss what God can do through you. That biblical Christianity, in a profound way, it looks at singleness and it says, it's not an identity deficit, it's not a romance deficit. Jesus was single. Hello. Jesus was single. Use your singleness. Use it. And use it in such a way that you can express this kind of friendship love in the family of faith the elder to the beloved guys whom I love in the truth, this deep, rich friendship. We can be friends to other people. We can allow people to be friends for us. And the Christian family becomes your family. And we pour into each other, and we do this journey together. And this is a helpful tool, isn't it? This idea of biblical friendship for those who are single. But it's not just applied to those who are single. For those of you who are married as well, that an important aspect of a flourishing, healthy marriage is a friendship kind of love, a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder kind of love, uh, stuff uh, where you're doing ordinary, everyday life together in a way that friends would. We need that ingredient in a healthy, flourishing marriage. But this is a reminder for, for those of you who are married who are listening to this message. If, if, if a friendship kind of love is a love that says, Hey, listen, I choose you. I choose to love you. May that be a reminder for us who are married. We are not stuck with our spouse. We have an opportunity to choose our spouse. And we choose to love them and choose to care for them as Christ has loved us. Do you know what we're doing? We're being friends in the richest, deepest, fullest picture of what a gospel kind of friendship truly 
is. And, and this not only is true of individuals, maybe you're single here today, it's not only true of families, but it becomes true of, a, of an entire family of faith, right? That if you're single here in our fellowship and you think, man, I've got a biological family on the other side of the country, I don't really know my coworkers all that well, do you see, do you realize, let's be family to one another, that the small group that you're in or the ministry you're a part of or even small and subtle things. Have you noticed at the end of every service, you know, I always give a wink, you know, turn to one another, say hi. Do you know, do you realize you're turning to your family? You're catching up with family. You're, you're, you're pouring into family and it produces, the gospel produces this family of love. Why? Because we're reflecting the very character of God. Persons in loving community one God, three persons, and we are wrapped, when we are wrapped up with, in Him, we form a family of love. Now, do we love each other perfectly? No, we don't. But man, He's called us to do it. He provides grace when we fall short. He provides mercy and compassion in the same way that He has forgiven us, we can forgive one another that in a beautiful sense, and I don't know about you, but I've had many times, many times, probably more than I'd be comfortable counting, where it's the times where, when I blew it, when I said the wrong thing, or used the wrong tone of voice, or just was not living in love, whether that's in marriage to my spouse or to friends, times when I've blown it and I've circled back and said, hey, you know what, I should not have said that. Can you forgive me? Have you noticed when that happens, the relationship gets deeper, in some ways, sometimes deeper than it ever was if there wasn't a conflict, if there wasn't something to need to offer and extend forgiveness and mercy and grace. This is like the ultimate judo move of the gospel. <laughs> Though we think something is going to come in and destroy a relationship, when there's forgiveness, reconciliation, it actually strengthens it, makes it stronger. This is what the gospel produces, a family of love. But not only does the gospel produce a family of love, that's verses 1 and 2, but it also forms and creates and fosters fidelity to truth. Truth. Look at verses 3 and 4 of 3 John. For I rejoice greatly, John says, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And here we go, once again, in a short amount of verses, we see the word truth repeated four times in these four verses. Once again, God's word is saying, don't miss this, capture this, look at this. A part of this passage is about truth. <laughs> it's a main concept of these short verses. And when we start to look biblically at what truth is, we start to see very quickly that biblically speaking, especially in the letters of John, in the gospel of John, truth is not just facts to put in our head. It's at least that. It's at least something that we have to know. But truth is not just that. It's more than that. It's the whole totality of God's revelation and who he is in Christ. That truth was embodied. Truth came to us. That God has spoken to us. And we start to see that truth is it's someone to meet. It's a relationship who says something to know and that's what we have in God's Word. He has spoken to us. And to know truth is to be in relationship with God, to know what He said, which includes, which includes reading it, knowing it, understanding it, where it's confusing, studying it. 
But there's an appropriate and fitting place for knowing more about what God's Word has said. But if we stop there, we don't get the full picture of truth. It's also something to walk in. Someone to know. Or someone to meet, sorry, saying something to know, guiding somewhere to follow. This is the full picture of truth, biblically speaking. And that's why John uses twice in these verses, one in, once in verse 3, once in verse 4, the phrase, walking in truth. That truth is something that we can walk in. And this New Testament image of walking is oftentimes used as shorthand for lifestyle. That we would shape and form and fashion the whole picture of our lifestyle in conformity to God's revealed truth in Christ, in His Word, and that we would do it, that we would live it out. And do you see how it's good to know things about God? It is. It's very good to know things about God. And we, we can always learn more about God, but if it's always knowing but never doing, if it's just information but never transformation or formation, it's not the full picture of what biblically truth is talking about. It's something that should shape our lives, that we can either walk in or out of step with the truth of the message of the gospel. And at this point, um, there could be dozens and dozens and dozens of examples that we can start listing out. I'll just take one and explore some of the nuances. If, 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 if we are forgiven by God, we are called and we can forgive one another. Now, all three of those things, if we're forgiven by God, that means we've got to know God. That means we have to hear that he has said that we are forgiven. And we are called to therefore forgive others. Do you see? Someone to meet, something to know, somewhere to follow. If we're forgiven by God and we are called to forgive one another, one of the ways that we walk in the truth of the gospel, one of the ways that we are walking in truth, which brings incredible joy, is to forgive. Here's one example. If, if you've got bitterness in your heart towards someone, frustration or spite or, or kind of this growing vindictive desire, do you see? We've got to let go of that stuff. We've been forgiven at infinite cost to God himself. And that's not a message that I'm saying, hey, we've been forgiven, now you better go forgive. Like, no, no, no. It's saying, if we've been forgiven at infinite cost, it melts our heart at every other wrong that we have faced. Think about this. Infinite cost, every other wrong that we face in some ways is trivial compared to the forgiveness that we've received. It melts our hearts. It forms a heart that wants to forgive. And though it is hard to forgive, we take a close look again at the gospel, at our Savior, and, and we forgive. And perhaps there's, there's, even when I said that, maybe there might be some roots of bitterness in your heart. If a name or a face came to mind, call them up. Call them today. Message them today. Say, hey, can we get together? I need to... I need to ask for your forgiveness on something. Or say, hey, can we get together? I'm just sensing some tension between us, and I don't want the relationship to always be here, to be in this place of tension or, or bitterness or frustration. Can we sort this through? Because this thing, this thing of the Christian community, the family faith, is too important. It's too important to let roots of bitterness creep in. 
frustration or anger to, to come in and, and, and divide relationships. Do you see, to walk in step with the gospel, and this is one example, it's to forgive, to reconcile, to let go of bitterness, to call someone up, for someone to take the first step and say, hey, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? For someone to say, hey, I think there's something in between us, let's work this through. And when we do that, when we do that, with that example in our mind, doesn't it make so much sense now when John says, I have no greater joy. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. When we know Christ, when we know what he said, and we do it, man, that's life-giving, isn't it? Brings joy in our lives. And not just a joy in the kind of a burst of, of happy emotions, although that might be there as well, but a sense of completeness, a sense of rightness that as God has treated me, when I treat you in the same way as Christ has treated me, man, there's something beautiful going on there. There's something that taps into the heart of reality itself. God, one God, three persons living together in loving community. And in him it forms this fidelity to truth. It, the more we read God's word, the more we pray, the more we're in community with each other, studying God's word together and seeking to live it out as best we can, it's, it's like a snowball effect. That when we live in light of God's word, we realize, man, it's just, this is the design. This is how it should be. And it brings a profound sense of joy. So the gospel produces a family of love family that reflects the love that we have first been loved with. The gospel produces fidelity to truth. And don't miss this. Love and truth, they are inseparable. Inseparable. Check out that first verse again. The elder to the beloved Gaius, here it is, whom I love in truth. Whom I love in truth. And oftentimes I think, and I don't know if it's necessarily wrong per se that this image comes to mind, but oftentimes when we think about love and truth or truth and love, we think about it as two balances, two ends of a scale. In some ways that if one is at a deficit, we've got to you know, kind of counterbalance with the other. And I want to challenge that metaphor a little bit, that if we see love and truth as, as mere opposites on a scale, then we're going to see love and truth always in conflict with each other, Always one needing to fight out the other to try to balance things so everything is good. And not only will we see them in conflict with each other, each other there's going to be a profound propensity to overcorrect or to overbalance. And we have, we have heard it from all sorts of different places. You know the experience. You know, when you're talking with someone and they're coming across a little harsh, but then they drop the phrase, well, hey, I just, I just tell it how it is. I'm a truth-telling kind of person. And under, underneath it, you're well... Actually, you're just kind of mean right now. You're just being a little salty. Or, on the flip side, when someone kind of oozes love, but there's opportunities in their life where they really need to step forward and encourage to maybe uh, love even when it's difficult to love and it's not happening. Do you see? If we see those as opposites of a scale, they're going to be in conflict with each other, and we might overcorrect. Here's two ways. A couple narratives that you might see floating around in the world or on social media or in conversation. You might bump into here and there uh, an ideology that says all truth claims are 
power plays. All truth claims are power plays that either demean or trivialize at least or oppress and are violent at worst. So therefore, again, if it's a, if it's a balance on a scale, if all truth claims are power plays and therefore not loving, we got to get rid of truth so that that love scale balances out. But do you see, this is a side message for another day to explore in more depth. That narrative itself, all truth claims are power plays, you might think, well, wait a second, that sounds like a truth claim. It sounds like a truth claim made that therefore you want me to do something different. So the logic kind of actually folds in on itself. But the point is, the narrative says we got to get rid of truth so we can balance love. Other side of the coin, other side of the scale. You're going to find a narrative floating out in the world uh, in social media and conversation and relationships that says to be loving to someone, to truly love someone, is to fully celebrate and endorse our individual quest to discover and define truth as it is for me. And that's what, it, according to the world, that's what it means to love, right? To endorse my individual journey of the discovery and definition of what truth is. But we, but we run into a pinch on that side too. Because if that is true, then truth evaporates. Then it, it becomes like pinning jello to a wall. That there, there's, there's no standard in which when I am in the wrong, someone says to me, hey, that was wrong. I say, hey, how, how, how dare you say that, right? We lose all footing, and, and if we overcorrect on either side of these balances of the scale, the whole thing breaks down, the whole thing evaporates. Biblical Christianity offers a different way. Biblical Christianity does not see these two things as, as opposites on a scale to balance and counterbalance. These two things are absolutely inseparable because they are the very character attributes, two of the very character attributes of God himself. Now, if Jesus, who says, I am the truth, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. If truth is personal, someone to meet, saying something to know, guiding somewhere to follow, and if God's word says of God that God is love, so in the very Godhead himself, We've got truth in love. Do you see? These aren't opposites of a scale. They're, they're molecules to an atom. You can't have one without the other. They are absolutely inseparable. And if we try to separate the two, if we try to separate that atom it, it, to nuclear results, everything breaks down. Everything explodes or implodes. That what God calls us to is, is into something pretty profound. He calls us into himself. And when we are brought into God himself through union with Christ by the Spirit, to the extent that truth and love are inseparable are in our lives, we're reflecting our Savior. And I think that's a glimpse of what this passage shows us and tells us here today. That we reflect our Savior. We reflect God. Though imperfect, because we are still broken, we're st still struggling in the presence of sin until he comes again, but we reflect, though imperfectly, the very character and reality of God to the extent that truth and love are inseparable in your life and in my life. And if Jesus, who says, I am the truth, if he says that and truth is wrapped up in him, then one of the most truthful things that we can do is love one another. And if God's word says of God that God is love, one of the most loving things that we can do 
is guide and direct and point ourselves and others around us to the truth that God has revealed himself through Scripture. Do you see how interconnected these are? Do you see how entangled they are to the point where it's almost hard to talk about them? And that mystery gives way to worship. That mystery gives way to an incredible glimpse into the very character and heart of reality. God himself, one God, three persons. And when he wraps us up in him, we see these two things, love and truth, inseparable in our lives. Friends, that's something that we need. I need that. You need that. The world needs that. We continue to live in a season where both of those, uh, there are a few examples of them practiced well. May we show a watching world that there's something different about us, not because we're so great, not because we're so loving, not because we're so brilliant that we discovered the truth, but may a watching world see through us, not great people, but people with a great God who has shown that kind of love and truth to us. So for his glory and for a world that needs it, let's do it. Let's pray. Father, as, even as we close this message in somewhat of a, a charge to us, a challenge for us to live this out in our lives. Lord, I know immediately in my own heart, if I'm going to do this, the first thing I need to do is confess. Lord, I, I fall so short so many times. We fall short so many times. But Lord, we thank you that your grace is there to forgive, to restore, to pick us up, to even redeem times where we do blow it, to be a fresh opportunity to show the love with which you first loved us. So Father... Help us to practice this well, to glorify you. Help us to practice this well, to love and care for one another as a family of faith. Help us to do this well that through the way in which we, we integrate these things, the world might see something different and they might ultimately see you. Help us to this end, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.